Corinthians 6, verses 12 to 20, which can be found on page 809 of your pew Bibles. First Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be metered by anything, uh, mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his whole body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. This is the word of the Lord. So when my mother was young, she, she grew up in the church. Everybody in those days grew up in the church. But in her church, they advised her not to read the Bible because there were things in there that young girls should not read about. Instead, they should get their teaching from the priest. So today is one of those weeks that there are things in here that hmm, young children maybe should not be exposed to in church, at least. So, yeah, 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 now I... Now the, so feel free, if you're below high school age, to go hang out in the lobby or to play your games, <laughs> if your parents permit. <laughs> anyway, there you go. And I'm sure now I got the attention of everybody else, but anyway. So Stephen Mason is Ph.D., is a psychologist a former university professor, and now a radio talk show host. And he wrote an online article for Psychology Today magazine asking, why does God hate sex? And he began like this. People will, first point, people will ask why I write about sex. Because it's what people want to read. If this column were about giving blood at the orphanage, Would you read it? Second point he makes. Personally, I've had a great deal of experience in this area. As a result, I suffered none of the frustration and fixation shared by most Americans. How pleased I am to know about his proclivities. Third point he makes. Just consider the latest flapdoodle involving a half dozen little girls doing a sexy dance in sexy outfits as part of some sort of competition posted online. This video is shown again and again, and the refrain is always the same. 
Ain't it awful? Tisk, tisk, tisk. I don't think it's awful. I don't think it's anything but a way of boosting ratings with a sexually immature audience. So not only is it great that he's having all the sex he wants, but it's also great that we sexualize our young children. Sex is funny in that you can't live without it. Not without paying a mental and physical price. Mm -hmm. It's a simple pleasure that grows out of all proportion when it's denied. If Mother Nature were allowed to have her way, this would be a far better place. If more people were having sex with more people, life would be a lot better, he's saying. Who's behind all the restrictions? Well, God. Well, not actually God, but religion. And he goes on to suggest that if we had more sex, then we'd have fewer terrorists in the world and so forth. Now, I would suppose he's not writing, he does, he does say this, or if they had more sex, they would be less likely to resort to terror. Now, I would suppose he's writing this. I didn't take the worst example. Really, what I took was I, I googled, why does God hate sex? And here's what came up. I would suppose he's writing less as a psychologist and hopefully less as a university professor than as a radio talk show host shock jock at the moment. But this is how a lot of people view the church and how a lot of people view the Bible and how a lot of people view the God that we talk about is that God is opposed to sex, that God characteristically hates sex. Notice the quotation marks in the sermon title that plays out later on. This is not a biblical position, obviously, but it's a position that many people would ascribe to the church. Now, what are we doing? Remember, every week I start with a review. What we're looking at, we've, we spent oh, most of a year looking through the Old Testament, tracing the flow of what God was doing in, the, in history through the Old Testament, brought us up to Christ. And the Old Testament expects that when Christ comes, the Bible's going to stop, really, that Christ is going to fulfill all the promises, and then we'll be living back in a place as good or better than Eden. But Christ came. But then as we sang, he, he, he died. He, he didn't make everything all new. He died. And Christ said, well, I'm coming back in a future time, and then all the promises will be fulfilled. And so what we do is, right now, currently, we're living in the in-between time. And the question is, what will our life be like? And this is really what the New Testament is about, is a life in the in-between time. So we saw from the book of Acts that, that our lives in this era are to be characterized by the prioritizing of missions to the unreached. And not church for the reached, or not discipleship for the reached, but missions to the unreached. Really, the priority in God's eyes and in our life as a community should be the people we send out to East Asia and other places to share the gospel with those who've never heard the gospel. And then First Thessalonians talks about how do we, you know, we will be marching to the beat of a different drummer, if you will. And then the culture will find this odd. And you know how the culture reacts to anything that it finds odd, is to smack it a little bit. So how do we face life, or how do we face our culture when we're out of step with it? How do we deal with the cultural opposition? First Thessalonians. And then Second Thessalonians. You know, life will be a lot better when Christ returns. But we don't know when that'll be. 
So we could waste a lot of our time and energy focusing, fixating on trying to figure out when Christ is going to come back. Instead, Second Thessalonians says, we don't know when he's going to come back, but we do know what we have to do, how we have to live, in order to be ready when he does come back. So it says, focus on those things instead. And then we saw from Galatians that life in this in-between era is to be marked by racial and ethnic and gender and economic reconciliation. You know, all this brouhaha going on right now in our presidential campaigns, in the um, primaries, is really a lot about economic conflict. And so Galatians speaks mainly about racial and ethnic, but it also references gender reconciliation and economic reconciliation briefly. So what is our community life to be like in these in-between times? And then we saw from 1 Corinthians. You know, 1 Corinthians, we'll spend several weeks there because it's a long book, but all of it really ties together with this. All of it relates to the culture invading the church. Only I need to restate that a little bit because it's not like really the culture invades the church. It's that we're in the culture. We're entirely enculturated. And then we become Christians. And then slowly we're pulling out of the culture. Or slowly we're moving and the culture is sliding out of us. But there's a lot of that culture still in us. And you don't see that anywhere more clearly in the New Testament than in the book of First Corinthians. All of their problems relate to the fact that they hadn't yet got some of their cultural values out of them. Some of our cultural values we can keep, but some we've got to divest ourselves. And they hadn't yet divested themselves of Greco-Roman uh, cultural values, many of which exist today. So they had not yet invested them, had not yet de- divested themselves of comparing, you know, treating pastors a, a consumeristic approach to church, a consumeristic approach to pastors or preachers. Comparing, okay, this is the one I like better, this is where I'm going to go. And today we see that they had not yet divested themselves of cultural attitudes in their time towards sex, an issue we still face today. Now, basically, we have three chapters and four issues, four paragraphs, four themes that come up in these three chapters. First Corinthians 5, he talks about incest. That's still not really a very popular form of sexual expression today, so we're going to skip over the incest bit. Then he talks about lawsuits, and we don't know why the lawsuits is in the midst of the rest of this, but these lawsuits were not over sex, they were over lawsuits, but... The third thing he talks about is sex with prostitutes. And the final topic he covers is sexless marriage. Now, for the sake of you who are not married, we're going to focus on sex with prostitutes. Now, I'm not assuming... Now, I don't want to assume that this is not an issue in our church, okay? Likely, it is to some degree. But what he says about sex with prostitutes really applies to any form of illicit sexuality, premarital sex, adultery, uh, any form of sexual addiction, pornography, uh, compulsive masturbation. All of this stuff fits in to what his argument about sex with prostitutes. So, so prostitutes was a particular issue they faced. But his response to that is capable of a broader application. And so we want to look at that. Now, 
we'll, we'll do is we'll look at it in terms of four questions. First, does the Bible portray sex as bad? Secondly, is sex casual? We use this, this expression commonly enough about casual sex. Is sex casually from a biblical perspective? Is, is it casual from a biblical perspective? Is sex purely physical was an issue they had, Paul had to deal with here. And then secondly, is sex legitimate between consenting adults? Is this all you need in our culture? Pretty much, in most cases we'll see, in our culture, as long as sex is between consenting adults, then it's legitimate. Uh, Paul has something to say about that. So we'll take these four questions in turn. First of all, is sex bad? Now, the obvious answer, but I want to show it to you from Scripture, the obvious answer is only in some circumstances, uh, not in general. But turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse, beginning in verse 12. It's important to read this carefully because people will read it carelessly and think, ah, Paul's against sex. Or in chapter 6, he's in favor of sex. In chapter 7, he's against sex. And people, What Paul is doing here, actually, is he's citing the Corinthians. And then he's correcting, adjusting, responding to the Corinthians. First he cites them and then he corrects them. And the editors of the New Testament, or the NIV, in order to make it easier to follow, put quote marks around what he's quoting. Now in the ancient text, there were no quote marks. There were no spaces between words. There were no punctuation. You know, uh, the paper was very expensive in the ancient times. The scribes would just write, begin at the beginning and continue to the end, no spaces. Just one letter after another, no punctuation. But this makes no sense unless some of it is quotation marks, is, is a quotation from the Corinthians. What the problem is that the old NIV gets the quotation marks a little bit in the wrong place. The new NIV gets them in the right place. So we'll have to look at it closely. Turn to me, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Notice, begins, I have the right to do anything you say. The editor put in there to show that Paul's quoting the Corinthians. Paul's saying, Corinthians, you say to me, they're arguing with him. Because he wrote him a previous letter, he taught them, and they're, they're arguing with him, and he's now responding. You say, I have the right to do anything. And he says it twice. I have the right to do anything. Or maybe in your version it says, everything is permissible for me. Now, the translation makes it a little harder to follow this. But this is actually something Paul taught. Uh, the translation misconstrues it a little bit. But in, in the original Greek, what Paul taught was, we don't have to obey the Old Testament law anymore when it comes to food, for example. I can eat anything. I, I can eat lobster, though the Old Testament said I couldn't. I can eat pork, though the Old Testament said I couldn't. Paul says, look, the food laws are no longer valid. Everything is lawful for me, is what he said. So the Corinthians pick this up, and they take it from application to food and say, ah, well, now, you know, food is just one appetite. Hunger is just one appetite. Well, okay, if, if that's true of hunger and food, then it must be true of all of our bodily functions. So everything's lawful for me when it comes to sex, is what they're saying. You know, none of the Old Testament restrictions apply anymore. I, I can do what I want. Everything's permissible. Everything's lawful. I have the right to do anything. And Paul adds in two qualifiers. He says, well, 
Even if you do, not everything is beneficial. And he specifies what he means. Uh, I will not be mastered by anything. And the word master is a pun on the Greek word for permissible. These are different forms of the same basic root. So Paul's saying, permissible, I have a right that's not sufficient. What, what you've got to ask from a Christian perspective is, is this somehow helpful? And is this somehow addictive? Remember the quote from C.S. Lewis. Sex ceases to be a demon when it ceases to be a god. Even in his era, even in the UK, where things were more subdued or suppressed, sex was still elevated too highly. And he said, as long as we make sex an ultimate good, then it becomes an addictive evil. You know, and today we face the same things. Studies have shown that pornography and masturbation to pornography stimulates the same parts of our brain as illicit drugs, the same reward centers in the brain. And so as these activities become habits, they eventually become addictions. And some people struggle severely to break those addictions. And particularly porn, it doesn't just increase sexual desire. Studies indicate that it transforms sexual desire into what we would, into more uh, proclivity, more for violence and exploitation and abuse. It doesn't just raise the desire, it darkens the desire. And so Paul says, it's not good enough, even if it is something is permissible, that's not good enough. It's got to be beneficial. It's got to be liberating, not enslaving. Now, I'll mention it here because if I don't, I'll... You do know that we have a ministry in this church designed to help those who are struggling with a sexual drive expressed illicitly or sexual addiction. Uh, Ian and, and Winnie Carpenter uh, lead, coordinate the real ministry. So if this is an issue, you don't have to come and see me and worry about that I'm going to chew you out. Go have a word, quiet word with Ian and Winnie because they're very gentle people and they won't chew you out, but they will help you. You won't get through it alone, typically. You can get through it with a support group and some hard work. So that's his first, Paul's first response to them. They're saying, anything I do is okay before God because grace forgives me because God's freed from the law. And Paul says, no, no, not anything. Only those things that are beneficial. Only those things that are non-addictive. Now, the second thing our culture will tell us about sex is that we have this phrase, casual sex. Now, I want to suggest that there's a pragmatic problem with casual sex, and I, and I don't mean STDs, but there's a pragmatic problem with casual sex, and then there's a biblical theological problem with casual sex. The pragmatic problem, just this week, I, you know, I told you once before, and somebody else in this congregation does this too, so I feel, you know, uh, forgive, uh, I feel uh, it's, it's kind of okay. No, not really. But anyway, I told you before that I read this, this gossip. Not, it's not a gossip column, you know. It's people write in for advice about their love lives. 
And then the author who has no basis. She just writes a, she writes back and gives advice about their love lives. And it's just fun to read because it's kind of like authorized gossip because the people are putting it in there. You know, no, I'm not listening over like eavesdropping or anything. And it's just kind of fun to read. You know, legitimized gossip. Anyway, so this week, yeah, as I'm preparing for this sermon, it just turns out that one of the people wrote in and said, look, and, and okay, I would not normally talk about these things, but the Bible's kind of frank, so I'll talk about it. Anyway, uh, the woman wrote in and said, look, um, I, w- you know, I was dating, well, I was online, with, I met this guy online, for two weeks we corresponded, and we seemed to hit it off, so I invited him to a, uh, a, a group gathering with my friends, and we, that went fine, and so the, I invited him for a date the next day. And so we hung out together, and she says, I'm kind of comfortable with my sexuality. It's not a big deal. If I want to have sex, I have sex. And so that afternoon on our first date, we had sex. She added three times in one afternoon. I don't know why we needed to know that or why you needed to know that, but there you go. We had sex three times in one afternoon. And so then, then he goes back, and we're going to have a date in two days. And so in the intervening day, she said, I sexted him. She put what she said, but the editor deleted and said, we can't be reading this stuff in Boston.com. Anyway, she sexted him. And then he wrote back and said, well, I have a headache. I'm beginning to get sick, so I can't meet up with you today. But tomorrow I'll be better. We can hang out then. So she got angry, broke the date for the next day, and... It sent him a snarky message back, and now she's writing into Boston.com for advice about how does she, what she should have sent that snarky message. Now, you see the pragmatic problem with casual sex, right? She acted like it was casual. She said she's okay with casual sex. She has casual sex. She contacts the guy the next day, and the guy says, what? I have a headache, I'm getting sick, but I'll be better tomorrow. Which is code for, there's somebody else I'm going to have casual sex with today. I can have casual sex again with you tomorrow. So she hits the roof. Because pragmatically, you know, right? Sex is not really quite so casual as we try to make it out to be. That's the pragmatic problem with it. But there's a much bigger theological issue with it. Notice how they justified that sex is pragmatic and, and casual. You say, this is argument by analogy. You remember the previous argument about food laws? Food laws, therefore sex laws. Food laws no longer apply, therefore sex laws no longer apply. So here's their argument again from food for sex. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. God created food to fill the stomach and created the stomach to digest food. Ergo, God also created sex, and he created sex organs from A to B. And, they continued, God will destroy them both. And, and this part is essential. The old NIV doesn't have this in quotes, but this is part of their argument. You'll see as we go on. God will destroy them both. God, there will be no food in heaven. And, and there won't be no, we won't need stomachs in heaven. We won't need to eat. We won't need stomachs. And therefore, in heaven, there's going to be no marriage, right? No sex in heaven. The terrorists will be disappointed. Not just for that reason. There will be no sex in heaven, and therefore no sex organs, presumably, in heaven. 
Paul says, no, no, no. It's, this is all casual. It's just, just something we do in this life. And the next life, you know, this is all just material and that next life is spiritual. It's all just temporary stuff. It's not eternal stuff. Sex is not eternal. And, and Paul says in response, he takes each of these in, in, in peace, by peace. He takes each of them and replies in turn. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Hey, food is for the stomach, yes, but the body is not for immorality. It's for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Jesus died, not just our souls. We got this odd, disembodied spirituality which owes itself to Plato. It doesn't come from the New Testament or the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus didn't die just for our souls. He died for our bodies. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is meant for the body. And by his power, the God who raised the Lord from the dead will also raise us also, not just our spirits. Because you don't raise spirits. Spirits continue. It's the bodies that die. It's the bodies that rot. And it's the bodies that need to be raised. So when we talk about the resurrection of the dead, we're talking about the resurrection of dead bodies. So Paul says, look, this sex is not casual. It has eternal significance. It impacts our bodies, and our bodies are not temporary dwellings. You know, the heavenly bodies, the resurrected bodies, they'll be different, as Jesus' body was different, than these mortal bodies are. But Jesus is raising our, our bodies, too. So how we use our bodies still matters. Sex is not casual, Paul says. Sex is eternal. Because our bodies are not merely physical. They're also eternal. So how we use our body becomes part of our spirituality. The third question he turns to is, is sex purely physical. Now, Paul is a little bit offensive here, and if you haven't been offended yet, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit close to the edge here. But, because Paul's kind of close to the edge here. Notice what he says in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then? Your bodies are the members. Your bodies are limbs. Your bodies are appendages, is the word he's using. Your bodies are appendages or limbs of Christ himself. Therefore, he asks, shall I take the limbs of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? If sitcoms are to be believed, every red-blooded American male's goal is at least a threesome, if not a foursome. And when athletes get it on, they're quite happy to talk about their exploits. Well, Paul goes on to say, as, that, as Christians, in one sense, we're already involved in a threesome. Because we are united with Christ. And then, when we have sex with somebody else, it unites us to them. And therefore, derivatively, this Christ with whom we're united, when we're having sex with somebody, is therefore united with them. So if sex is between a Christian spouse, it makes no difference because Christ is united with each of the spouses. But if sex is with a prostitute or in an illegitimate relationship, he's saying, what you're doing is not just something to your bodies. 
you're doing something to Jesus. He says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? And he uses the strongest possible Greek expression for his, you know, the NIV translation is never exclamation point. Bold face it. I, it just, it cannot be. He's horrified at the notion. And then he goes on to explain it. Don't you know that whoever unites himself with a prostitute is one in body with her because the two shall become one flesh? Now, you see, it doesn't apply just to prostitutes. It applies to any kind of sexual, act, any kind of sexual intercourse. Is that the two become one, is what the Old Testament says. And, verse 16b, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So we're one with the Lord, we're one in this sexual relationship, therefore Christ is one in this sexual relationship. And he's horrified. It's not purely physical. You can't get more spiritual than this. You can't get more spiritual than prayer, than worship, than sex. They all involve Jesus how we treat our bodies, if we're Christians, entails how we treat him. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and engage them in participation in illicit sex? This is not purely physical. It's also spiritual. We treat our bodies too frivolously. We treat our bodies too frivolously. Another illustration of the same thing on a slightly different piece, but, but relevant. This week, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit calendar came out. Now, I know this not because I get on the Sports Illustrated website to look, because I quit using the Sports Illustrated website because they publish a swimsuit. And I read ESPN. Only then I found out that ESPN does Sports Illustrated one better because they have a naked issue every year. So I can't read sports without being confronted with sexuality. But the way I know that Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition came out this week, oh, by the way, I had a fellow once tell me, he wanted to tell me how much in love in, or enraptured he was with some girl he just met. And he said, you know, he said, this week I got the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition in the mail. And any other time, I'd pour over that. But this time, I'm so in love with this woman, I just threw it in the bin. Okay. How about you be so in love with Jesus, you throw it in the bin? Uh, not just this time, but every time. You know. And, and you probably just didn't pour over those photos when that issue came in. You know, this addictive behavior again. But... But so back to this, you know, the particular thing we saw in, the, in the, this, this year, the swimsuit edition was, was mentioned in Time magazine, and they actually had a promo for it. But the, 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 this edition of the swimsuit, uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit calendar is, uh, or, or magazine, is revolutionary, we're told. This year it's revolutionary. Now, if you know why it's revolutionary, I can't ask you because you probably don't want to admit it in church. But it, it, it's revolutionary because this time, one of the models is size 16. 
And that's the first time they've ever had a, you could call full-bodied woman, as, you know, normally they're anorexic, right? So Time Magazine has a little, uh, you know, little intro advertising for it. So, so I thought, well, where is this going to go? I click on the ad, and it shows this size 16 woman in a small swimsuit walking down the beach, swinging her hips, and three guys are laying there on, lounging there on beach chairs, and their blood pressure, rise, you know, the sweat rises, they spritz themselves with water, their mouths are hanging open, the, you know, tongues are hanging out. And I figured, okay, this is more than I needed to see, and I turned it off. So what we've managed to do, our great advance this year in our culture, is that we've managed to sexualize full-bodied women. So it's not just the anorexic types that we can lust out. Why does Sports Illustrated publish it? Why do these women do it? And then, you know, this year there was this big uh, TV, an online issue about um, uh, filming of some woman walking through the streets of New York for 10 hours. And all the cat calls and all the rude comments and all the obscene comments that she got from guys that just happened to be hanging around there. And they showed this is what happens to a woman who walks down the street in America. And then they, another follow-up was a, a woman walking down the street, I don't know, Denmark or Netherlands, and everybody left her alone. But in America, where it's just highly sexualized comments. Well, yeah, let's protest that. But let's also protest these calendars or this swimsuit edition. It's just that, you know, the body is something sacred. It's something for husband and wife to share, not something to have softcore porn in a sports magazine. And finally, the question is this. Is sex legitimate for consenting adults? You know we have this one thing. And this is at least a virtue. At least America has this notion of consenting adults. Sex is only legitimate between, sex, uh, between consenting adults. That's a half of a virtue. At least it's a virtue because it rules out some things. It rules out teachers having sex with school kids so that we put them in jail. It rules out priests and pastors having, being pedophiles. At least nowadays we put them in jail. Do you know Germany this week had a controversy, passed a law, and there was a lot of debate about it, a law against bestiality, that now in America since the 1990s, there have been 37 states that have passed laws against bestiality because animals cannot give consent. Are you serious? We need laws about this? At least all of these are prevented by the doctrine of by the ethic of consenting adults. But that ethic is also only half good because what does it mean? It legitimizes premarital sex. It legitimizes homosexuality. But, but the, the ethic breaks down. For some reason, in America today, incest is still frowned upon. Why? Provided they're consenting adults. For some reason, in America today, polygamy can still get you arrested. Why? Provided they're consenting adults. You see, our culture is striving to find an ethic. It rejects the biblical ethic. It wants some ethic, but it chooses a rather arbitrary ethic. The consenting adult definition breaks down pragmatically, but it also breaks down theologically. Notice what Paul says about the doctrine. It's, Sin is an offense against our bodies 
and therefore it's an offense against the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice verses 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside. No, what it means is this. All other sins a person commits are apart from the body. They have no permanent lasting effect on the body. They're not physical sins. All other sins are not physical sins. They don't somehow affect your body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. You know, the two shall become one. There, there is something unique about sexuality, about sex as an activity, that it, it's not just a random outside activity. It affects our bodies. And then our bodies are not ours to consent with or not consent with. We need somebody else's consent. We need God's consent. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian? Your body doesn't belong to you now. It belongs to the Holy Spirit. We are temples. It's like a church. Would you have sex in the church? Would you have sex with your body, which is the church? Do you not know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Notice how he manages to work the whole trinity in here. Illicit sex is an offense against the Holy Spirit, who dwells within you. It's an offense against the Father, who gave you the Holy Spirit. And it's an offense against Christ, who paid the price so that we could have the Holy Spirit from the Father. We manage to offend the entire trinity all in one act. And therefore, he says... Your bodies do not belong to you. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You know, basically what I would say to wrap this all up. If a psychologist is going to explain anything about sex, I don't think we need him to explain why God puts some kind of restrictions against sex. If we need laws against bestiality, if we need laws against pedophilia, we know we need restrictions against sex. Uh, Restrictions around sex, not against, around sex. We know we need those. What a psychologist could better do is explain to us, as Americans, why? Why sex is such a big part of our minds and our lives. That's the true riddle that a university professor might help us explain. Not that we need to constrain this, but how a great gift from God can so often become a tool of enslavement in Satan's hands over God's people. Let's pray together. Father, we pray. We pray, Father, that you would help us to walk different than our culture, and to live a holy lives. We ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Please rise with me. Just sing the song of response.